This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 385, May the 7th, 1987. This evening, Douglas Murray is not with us because he is ill. We do miss him. He's a very, very stimulating addition to our circle. Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I will discuss questions this evening, beginning with one from Pastor Ovid Need. And this is an interesting one. I'll not uh, go into it in detail except to say that it is about time and the swiftness of time. Now, <clears throat> to discuss the subject of time is a rather difficult one because it's a difficult subject. It can be approached in a number of ways, philosophically, scientifically, and also religiously. One of the problems with regard to time is that there is a tremendous uh, disagreement in our time. One that began when I was quite young. It is between the traditional long-standing view of time that <clears throat> held that a second is a second anywhere in the universe, that an hour is an hour whether here or on Mars or anywhere else. As against that, we have the view of Albert Einstein on the relativity of time. According to this view, which a Christian scientist, Humphreys, has developed, there are marked variations in the meaning of time and in the length of time. For example, the length of a second is determined at the standard uh laboratories in Washington, D.C., virtually at sea level. If, however, you go to Pikes Peak, because of the higher altitude, a second will be much longer. Then, if you were to go out to Mars, a second would be dramatically longer. And if you went out to the most remote stars that we know of, ostensibly trillions of light years away, what for us is a second might be there trillions of years. The relativity of time, in other words, in the thinking of Einstein, makes a remarkable difference. Of course, some absolutely reject this concept of time. I asked one scientist about it, and he said 
If you believe in Einstein's theory, then Humphreys is right. If you do not believe in it, as I do not, then Humphreys is wrong. At any rate, this concept, of course, opens up a whole world of thinking because it means that the vast number of light years that it takes the light of a star to reach here can be a very short time because of the relativity of time so that it would be possible to hold that the world was and all things in the universe created a little more than 4,000 years B.C. and yet what science tells us still be valid. Well, I go into that by way of prelude because what uh, Pastor Need wanted comment on was on the swiftness of time's passage. I had mentioned some time ago that time speeds up during periods of God's judgment upon society. At other times, judgment seems to come more slowly. But in certain eras, the judgment comes very quickly, very rapidly. There seems to be a speed up in time. Of course, we can say that as we get older, time speeds up for us. I can remember as a boy thinking it was going to be forever before Thanksgiving or Christmas rolled around, and then forever before summer vacation came around. I could hardly wait for school to end, and those holidays and others and summer vacation to begin. Not that I didn't enjoy school, but the week then seemed so long. You'd start school on Monday, and no matter how much you enjoyed it, the week seemed very long before Friday afternoon rolled around. Well, as you get older, time seems to speed up. Before you know it, you are like myself, 81. And it doesn't seem that long ago that you were just 18. It's strange how rapidly time seems to move as we get older. So time is an interesting question. I wrote, oh, it must have been in the mid to latter 30s, probably even the earlier 30s, although I'm not sure, the section on time, which is in uh, systematic Systematics. theology. Rush, you wrote that in the back in the in the 30s. Yeah, no, in the 60s. On oh, the 60s. Yes. Okay. The first section on infallibility I wrote earlier. Yes. Well, 
I haven't read it since then, I'm uh, ashamed to say, because I should have reread it before Systematic Theology came out, but I don't know what I would say now, because the more you learn about the problem of time, the harder it becomes to say something about the idea of time. Well, Andrew, would you like to contribute something here? Rush has basically said the older you get and the wiser you get, the the less you want or able to say about time, so I better be careful about what I say. Um, Say it while you're young and can say it freely. It's easier when you're young to say things. I was thinking about the... uh, relationship between time and history and how they're inextricably linked and how that uh, we've largely inherited from the ancient uh, Greek philosophers the desire to escape time. I was reading a book recently, Andrew Lauf's uh, book, I think it was published by Oxford, on um, uh, the origins of the Christian mystical tradition in which he demonstrates the the Greek philosopher's lust for timelessness, which is a lust for escape from history and the body, of course, and so forth. For Plato and, and Plotinus and a lot of the early church fathers, it's the forms that are that are absolute. But I think we need to recognize that that time uh, as uh, a particular phenomenon is not absolute. Only God is absolute. So I think in that sense, Einstein is correct, although he certainly was not arguing from Christian premises at all. Um, there really is an aversion to, um, to, to time and history uh, in politics and in the church, wanting to reinvent orthodoxy every new generation, you know. And, of course, political liberals are notorious for this. Thomas Jefferson said... Um, Oh, how did he phrase it, Rice? The the uh, the earth is for the living, you know. Let us forgive, forget about the past. And then, thank God, we had men like Chesterton, who, despite some problems, nonetheless recognized that he wanted to stand with what he called the democracy of the dead. I think one thing that has remarkably shaped Rush's as perception is his deep knowledge of history. Um, we tend not to to make mistakes as frequently if we know history. But um, I see especially in the modern church the fact that new heresies arise. I was thinking of one recently that denies the physical resurrection of Christ and various other things, just a revival of ancient heresies. So we need to be aware of our own time conditioned being, that we are creatures within time. Only God is timeless. And the lust for timelessness is a lust to lust to play God. Um, Hitler and many others historically have wanted a, 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 a timeless utopia on earth. And they also hate change. This is another point that Rush has made very well, especially I think it was in volume two of the Institutes. I think you had a, what, three or four chapters maybe. I can't remember. I've read it years ago, Rush, but chapters on change and the necessity of change. Some people, of course, are just opposed to change in, on, on principle. Of course, liberals worship the only unchanging truth for liberals is change, and that's evil, but too many conservatives don't want any kind of change, and of course that's equally fallacious, because if we're going to be biblical people, we have to recognize there must be change to conform to what the scripture says. 
and of course as we as we live within time we change um, it's hard for us I'm sure Rush could speak much more powerfully than I could on this to see our children as they're young grow up and grow older and sometimes we almost want them to stay young because we enjoy them and capture the moment mm -hmm. but there's a heresy of, of uh, timelessness within history that's very evil um, we uh, a tender moment with our spouse or uh, our time with friends how often I'd like to sort of put in a bottle the, the time I've spent with my parents or people like Rush and, and others and bottle it up for the future but I can't bottle it up for the future it's impossible so we need to um, live responsibly under God's law for today thinking of tomorrow but nonetheless aware of our own um, time-bounded and time-shaped situation and I think in doing so we can be faithful stewards of of the kingdom there's more I could say but I noticed Mark's written some things down so well the concept of time has always fascinated me when the scripture says that there's no time in heaven and concepts that we use all the time like eternity it's easy to define eternity and to assume it goes on for it and we, but we often even fall into the category that eternity is a long time yes. <laughs> but it's not there's no time there that's right and um, be, time is created when God created the sun moon, right. He said, "This is for star, for times, and for seasons." And and he, he established the pattern of the week by His creation. He created, could have created everything in seven seconds, or seven days, or seven weeks. However, He chose. He chose to create the pattern of the week, which even non-Christians use to this time. So He's imprinted on us this concept of time, and time is a is a limiting factor. And uh, even you know people listening to this tape, I realized this was time before. This was tape before. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the tape, and, and everything is bounded by the concept of time. That's right. And um, as far as the speed of time, it's good sometimes not to be too comfortable about the way things happen. Sometimes we think, well, this is this is how things have gone in the past 10 years or 50 years, 100 years. It's probably going to continue. It's, which is what evolution is comfortable with, is this uniformitarianism. Yes, Everything's right. always been the same. No major mm -hmm. changes, no, no divine intervention. Everything's always been just the way it is. And um, sometimes to see something happen fast corrects our thinking. For instance, um, an automobile accident can change someone's life in That's seconds. Right. An earthquake and the ground shakes for 15 or 30 seconds can create massive changes. Um, one individual's death in, in business right. or politics can change the course of, of history, humanly speaking. Um, Technological changes that uh, can can change the way we do things. If we even look at you know one or two inventions in the 20th century and how it's changed our society, like mm -hmm. the, the the radio or the television, is, has had a major impact on us. And it's good now and then to stop and see that that how something or some event has changed mm -hmm. the entire right. pattern of our lives and our history. Mm -hmm. And um, when we think about the future, 
and especially when we look at the world today and how unpleasant many things are in the world, we realize that the future is not can't be interpreted in terms of what's happened in the last 50 right. or 100 years. Um, God does what he will in his own time. That's right. And God can change men's hearts. He can change nations. He can change things very rapidly. I had someone once um, tell me, uh, this is, you know, 20 years ago, saying how much he appreciated my, my father's thinking. He was a Reformed Baptist. But he said, I, I can't see his post-millennialism because I just can't see that happening in the world today. <laughs> Which is exactly the false con that it's not the point that that's we right. see it happen or we're going to make it Absolutely. happen or it's a natural process. That's right. It's something that's going to happen in God's own time. That's right. So very often we, we fall into the fallacy of interpreting time in terms of how we understand it and our limited conception of how things have to work. That's right. Um, I was thinking, Rush and, and Mark, a quick anecdote. must have been about 10 years ago uh, when we lived in Ohio. We, my wife and I and the boys were very young. We're driving and we hit a, a uh, icy spot on the road and our car started spinning and um, we could have been in a serious accident, but thank the Lord we just ended in the ditch. But it seemed like Although that in, that whole episode took only like three or four seconds, it seemed in that that my that hours occurred in my mind. I'm thinking, you know, I could die now. You know, I could see God. What about my family? Um, that seems to be a common occurrence when people go through great crises. The time seems to expand within their own mind. Is that a valid um, statement? Would you say, yes. or people that are drowning, or that sort of thing? Yes, you have a heightened consciousness and a heightened awareness of the moment. Uh, most of the time the moment goes by and you're, uh, even though fully awake, half asleep as far as your apprehension of it. The interesting thing is that it, when you go back to pagan cultures such as the Greeks and the Romans, they did not like time. Right. They did not have a faith in God. They had gods, but the gods were deified humans. In fact, in Greece, they could tell you where Zeus was buried and other gods as well. And in Rome, the emperors became deified. But their idea of a god capital G-O-D, was really of an impersonal first cause. And they <clears throat> insisted on a first cause, or God, only because they did not want an eternal regress. Yes. And therefore they posited a God as the first cause, and that was his only function. Now, they, as a result, stressed eternity in an unusual way. They wanted to eternalize time. Yes. Hence, eternal Rome. Yes. And uh, Athens was supposed to have something of eternity about it. Yes. So that... Uh, they wanted to eternalize things in this world, That's things right. within time. Yes. 
your first real philosophy of time came with St. Augustine and with his confessions. And there he puzzled over the meaning of time. He recognized that you could not eternalize it. He recognized the importance of it in relationship to the human consciousness and the human experience of it. And the philosophy of time in the Western world began with Augustine's confessions. But the persistence of the Greco-Roman depreciation of time continued. And in one of the more famous hymns uh, found in almost uh, every hymnal, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. And the words in it a little later, Change and decay in all around I, I see. O thou that changest not, abide with me. Well, there you have a hunger for time to be changeless. Yes. And that's not biblical. That's right. Good point. And that has often crept into the Christian fold. Yes. But this world is a world of change. That's right. It is a world of decay. But here we must build God's kingdom. Yes. And we are told in Isaiah 65 that when we begin to approximate the kingdom of God on earth, the sinner who dies at a hundred will be accounted to have died young, that an amazing longevity will enter into time to prepare the world for eternity, when time shall be no more. So the Bible has a great deal to say about time. It's moral necessity in a world of sin. You cannot have a changeless world, which is a fallen world, where there is sin, or, as in Eden, the possibility of sin. Because then you enthrone sin eternally. But because there is change and decay, there is victory over sin. And death then shall die, as Paul says. It shall be no more. So the importance of change and decay of time is very real. And it is a moral necessity in a fallen world. That's right. And godly progress requires change. Um... You know, Rush, I was thinking about something else. You were talking about the ancient Romans, and I'd been discussing with you recently Ethelbert Stauffer's book, uh, Christ and the Caesars. Another point there that was fascinating, virtually every new emperor that came along, and almost everyone did it by nefarious nefarious means, mm-hmm. would proclaim the beginning of a new time. Yes. Every time it was the time... Of course, this happened too at the French Revolution, but uh, time begins now with me. Yes. Uh really remarkable. They were sure that with their policies 
they would create a new world order. Yes. A new world order in which ultimately uh, time would end. Uh, one American scholar in the past decade wrote a book on, I believe, the end of history. Yes. And it was essentially a neo-Marxist work because Marx saw the end of time, so to speak, the end of history, with the triumph of Marxism, of communism. Then everything would be like a beehive without change. And the imagery of the beehive and the anthill has been very, very powerful in history, especially with uh, socialist groups, with religious groups and cults that have a strongly centralized and socialist bent and are going to create the permanent world order. Yes. I should point out, I think I mentioned in, in the Feshrift that we did for uh, Rush, uh, a comprehensive faith that, as you can tell, while Rush is obviously not uh, a liberal, he's also not what many people would call a conservative, because so many of today's conservatives uh, want this sort of uh, timeless ancient order, the restoration of a timeless ancient order, an amillennial approach. But there's no progress. There's no godly progress yes. in that sort of uh, situation. Back to what you're saying about the resurrection. Um, time, resurrection is the end of time, and it, because it really reverses the whole progression of, of human time that is marred by, by sin. And uh, it reverses the inevitability of death. Now, yes. which says that with the resurrection and the final judgment, that represents that eternity is, is permanent. Okay, mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. no tomorrow in heaven, but That's there's right. no tomorrow in hell. There's no second chances. That's right. Concept of universalism says that in in hell there's a tomorrow. There's yes, a, man will have a second a chance. That's right. And uh, interesting. The, yes. the lack of time and eternity, I think, uh, is important in that regard. And we have to take that as a matter of faith. I was thinking of one of my daughters. I was explaining to them as best I could the eternality of God, and she says, "You know, I can understand how God could live forever, but I can't understand how He could always be here." My mind. He had to start somewhere. And I said, no. And she says, well, Daddy, I don't understand that. I said, none of us understands that. Because, because uh, it's, it's not, a, uh, it's, it's not a, uh, a creed of reason. We're not positing a reason. It's the, we, we accept this on faith. And um, I think that point that Mark made was excellent about opposing um, uh, universalism along that line. And it's uh, just a, a fact of the Word of God. And we accept it on faith. I think what you were saying about the Greeks and the Romans too is interesting because um, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God and providence, then time makes no sense, sense. whatsoever That's and right. chance controls everything. Because mm -hmm. when you think of how many things throughout history, when you read history books, and, and this is why in a lot of schools history is seen as the, the most boring and meaningless because it mm -hmm. seems like an endless progression of meaningless events. They had mm -hmm. consequences, but they were determined by a battle. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, especially I think in the 60s with the anti-war movement, were indignant that history could be determined by violence. Mm -hmm. And when you look at history as being basically just 
uh, um, meaningless and the story of man alone, it all it does seem very meaningless and mm -hmm. irrelevant because so many things throughout history have 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 happened as a result of a seemingly inconsequential event. That's right. Like um, the Battle of Gettysburg, a lesser offer, officer happened to, to see the need of taking the little round top mm -hmm. and he arrived there just before the Confederates as they were moving into position and if the Confederates had taken that position the Battle of Gettysburg might have been had a mm -hmm. different outcome. And na navies have been destroyed in storms uh, a general has died on the battlefield. Even the Spanish Armada and right. the provinces there. Yeah. So many things seem meaningless and yes. si and, and, until there's an, um, a providential view of time and history. Right. Well, we have to recognize that uh, time is an aspect of God's creation. Yes. We entirely miss the meaning if we see it as some kind of... Uh, ticking of the universe and uh, a passage of uh, events and simply that and no more. It is an aspect of God's creation and only when we see it as such can we see that it has an inescapable relationship to the fact that God created a world which was going to fall which had to struggle to reestablish God's kingdom and to prepare the way for the eternal kingdom of God. Time has its purpose in all of that sequence and progression. I've often thought of that hymn that Rush was referring to earlier, Abide With Me, and the change and decay and all around I see in life and death abide with me um, and how wrong that is and often this desire to escape history is also desire for a risk-free universe mm -hmm. yes uh, which is very dangerous if things never change there is no risk and I guess all of us like comfort um, in one form or another but there can't be any progress without risk and um of course, every day we get up, we take a, a risk because we're not eternal beings. Only God is an eternal being. We're perishable, uh, but God is not perishable. And we have to recognize our limitedness. And this is another aspect of, as Rush has pointed out so powerfully over the years, the distinction between the, the uh, creator and the creature. A man wants uh, some aspect of God's being. He wants to attain God's timelessness. And that really is, according to Genesis chapter 3, the, the original sin. Man is trying to play God. Um, and is often posited in such a spiritual light. Oh, I've read so many of the so-called deeper life books. You know what I'm talking about. How man, man can escape his creaturehood and man can be as God, you know. And that really is dangerous. Uh, we need to accept our creaturehood and and to be as holy and as righteous as possible for a creature to be. But beyond that, uh, it really is uh, idolatry. Well, there is a lust today for something that will enable man to transcend time, which is an impossibility. Uh, we have a great many cults, uh, New Age cults. That's right that stress one way or another 
escaping from time or overcoming time. And very few of these cults are willing to face up to the fact of death and judgment. Uh, reincarnation, for example, yes. uh, treats time essentially as simply a stage in which the soul works out its karma. Yeah. And as a result, wherever you have this concept prevailing, time loses its meaning. History loses its meaning. Everything is reduced to the individual and his karma. Yeah. But time tells us that the whole of <coughs> history is purposive, that God has ordained certain things that need to be done and must be done. Now, one of the things that... Uh, marks the anti-time spirit is pettiness. A yes. great deal of pettiness prevails in the church today Yes. Uh, over trifles. Yes. Uh, unbelievable trifles. Yes. With a world filled with sin and a need of Christ there are churchmen who do nothing but wrangle over little technicalities. Now, a pastor need ask the question, and I'm sure he gets a lot of them. I get letters concerning the name of Jesus, he writes. Could you all on a tape defend the use of the name Jesus over the use of other names that might mean the same from the Old Testament? There's no need to defend the name of Jesus. Right. No need to defend anything that is in scriptural. We have today a great many idiots in the church who will pick on some trifle and act as though they have some superior wisdom because they use that name or stress that trifle over other things. And supposedly we are not as versed in the scriptures. Or they will take a, a word as some of the identity people do. Uh, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and insist on a usage of it that uh, precludes from the uh, human race everyone who is not of the white persuasion. Yes. Uh, every kind of insanity imaginable. And I think the thing to do is to tell these people who object to the name Jesus or object to anything else or who erect trifles as of momentous import and that... Uh, they are guilty of misusing Scripture. Yes. That they are confusing trifles with essentials. That they are majoring in minors. And I think a sizable por portion of Christendom today 
is engaged in majoring in minors because it is afraid of dealing with the majors. That's right. Rush, do you mind if I give an, a, a remarkable anecdote about sure, that very thing? Right. A number of years ago, when I was a minister in Ohio, there was a local sort of evangelical conservative ministerial association that asked me to attend one of their meetings. I'd never gone, but one man prevailed on me to go one day, and so I decided to go. It was the experience of a lifetime. They would uh, get around and discuss topics. Well, the topic for the day was how to deal with members whose pets have died. <laughs> One younger minister said, oh, this is an important topic. He said, my two sons had two goldfish that died, and it really hurt them, and, and uh, we, need to, we need to take time with our children and deal with this issue of the death of pets. And then, unbelievably, an older minister that had just retired said, let us not laugh at this. I had a couple in my church, childless, but they had a dog for many years. And uh, someone called me a few years ago and said, Pastor, did you know so-and-so are grieving because their dog has passed away? Would you make a, past a pastoral visit and comfort them in all their distress? And I'm sitting there rushed thinking, I have so much work to do. So many vital things to study, so many sermons to prepare, so many things to write. And these irrelevant nincompoops are over here talking about pets and dealing with people whose pets have died. That is just the height of pettiness and irrelevance that I'll remember until the day I die. You missed uh, on a very, very important opportunity, Andrew. You should have asked, did I do wrong when I flushed my son's dead goldfish down the toilet. <laughs> Maybe it's someone reincarnated, you know. <laughs> I know what you mean. And these people become offended. <laughs> you say they are majoring in minors. <coughs> Rush, I think you're exactly right. It, their, their irrelevance is a studied irrelevance because it, um, they're not thereby, they thereby can avoid dealing with the real issues in the church. Yes. Um, I have been horrified over the years that people who come to me with a supposedly serious problem, it's about the meaning of a name in some obscure Old Testament passage. Could there be a hidden meaning in this name? Why is this name used here? And so on and so forth. And you look at those people and you say, God knows surely, and I somewhat, how much you need to know his word better. And you're wasting your time Absolutely. over this? Yes. You know, there's often a degree of hypocrisy involved. Uh, Mark and I know of a, well you do too Rush, of a particular fundamentalist minister whose name of course will go unmentioned, but it was the particular book you were asking about recently, mm -hmm. who would inveigh against uh, any woman who would ever wear slacks or wear dresses that weren't as long, come to find out right under his nose his son had been committing multiple adulteries and perversions, he never did anything about it, there was some question about his own moral standing, uh, and so there's this loud inveighing of of antinomians about all of their man-made standards, you know, but when it comes to the reality of the faith and actual violations of God's written law, uh, they're totally silent. Um, yes. 
Well, there is also an eschatological aspect here. If time is what the Bible says it is, time will end when Christ comes again and when man has destroyed everything that is against Christ. All things are put under his feet. Then Christ comes and the last enemy is destroyed. I don't know how people read that passage and think they can believe in an any moment return. That's right. All things are to be put under his feet first. And these people will do nothing towards that goal and will instead waste God's given, uh, God-given time over trifles and over dead goldfish. Absolutely. T- time is a limiting factor, but it's also a, uh, a responsibility because the commandment says six days shalt thou labor. It's That's not right. just resting one day out of seven. That's right. It's, it's which enough people don't want to hold to, but it's six days shalt thou labor. That's right. Man, man was made to work. Yes. Adam was not made to uh, have fun in the garden. He was made to work. That That's before right. the fall, there was work to be done. Yes, God did not make trees with swings on them for Adam and Eve to enjoy themselves. That reminds me, I don't know if Rush remembers this, the first time he came to our church in Ohio was a Sunday morning, the flight got in late. He got in and uh, and spoke from Genesis chapter 2, I believe, on that very point, Rush. He pointed out that that even before sin entered, it was very hard for Adam. He didn't have any clothes on. He was walking around probably stubbing his toes and knocking into things. It was very difficult. Yes. Uh, but we have people today that uh, who, who want to ease more than anything else. And this is especially true in the church. Yes. Well, they simply don't want the realities of the world. And our modern life, especially here in the United States, where there's a high degree of comfort, where... Human wants are largely met for people to forget the realities of the world in most continents. And as a result, they run into a few obstacles and they want to be raptured. I'm not ridiculing that idea. I'm not, because I take it with a sense of horror. Mm-hmm. To have people whom you've seen year in and year out spoil their children right. until they are monsters. Yes. And then weep and wail, why did this happen? Well, at least I'll be raptured soon. Yes. It's frightening. Yes, it is. I heard just this week of a young man, handsome, very capable, and a beach bum, does nothing to be a father in his family or to be a godly husband. And when he's asked, you've got a great many children. You're not doing anything to provide for them. What about their schooling? 
uh, don't have to worry about it. Before they're of college age, we're all going to be raptured. So, that is not mature manhood, let alone Christianity. And yet it is so prevalent. Churches are full of this sort of thing, and they will not deal with them. I heard today of a pastor, a fine man, uh, the kind you'd be happy to know socially. You, you know he knows his Bible well. And yet he can't deal with the most elementary situation with the most important man in his congregation. Somehow he's praying that the Lord will solve the matter. But God doesn't hear prayers like that because he requires us to solve those matters. The high degree of avoidance of issues today is frightening. And Rush, especially when contrasted with our brethren elsewhere. You remember years ago, Rush, I read, I think it was one of your editorials on God is no buttercup. Very powerful statement. Um, I mean, today our brothers and sisters in the Sudan are are suffering indescribable uh, tortures and persecutions, as well as, as, you know, in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and China and Cuba, and we could go on and on and on. But then when we compare that to... to, um, the ease with which we take things. And of course God has put us in a situation where there is ease because of progress and so forth. And so I'm not suggesting we get rid of our ease, the right kind. I'm suggesting that we recognize what's going on elsewhere and be faithful to God and to his word. But that's just completely lost. Mm -hmm. Completely lost. I was deeply moved today. One of the calls I received was from John Nelson, the sculptor in uh, Alaska. Alaska. Yes. And uh, he sent his uh, regards to both of you. Mm. But uh, the last time we had talked, I told him to be in prayer for the Christians in the Sudan. Mm -hmm. And he told me today that he'd been in very faithful prayer for them since our last telephone conversation. Well... That means not only that John is a mature Christian, which he is, but he also has a sense of the times and that if Christians here do not pray for the suffering Christians in the Sudan, God is going to judge us. Yes. I don't know how anyone who is not afraid of God can avoid praying for the Christians in the Sudan. The women folk are sold into slavery, the children into slavery, and the men crucified. Absolutely. And of course the Muslims, and we could go on and on, but the Muslims come into villages, uh, poverty-stricken villages, because of poverty because of government policies, and have plenty of food, and they say, if you're willing to renounce Christianity, we'll be happy to give you food. If you're not willing, then you're going to starve. And a lot of that is food from this country and from the That's UN. Right. That's right. Who both wink 
at the monstrous evils yes. that characterize Islamic uh, peoples in the Sudan. And you know what's especially galling, Rush? I think I mentioned this to you a, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago. One of the major weekly news magazines I, I get, just one of them, had a little box, like on, oh, about page 17, 18, something like that. It says, little um, information boxes, and it says, did you know that Christians are being persecuted for their faith? And it talks about a little, there was a little statement in the Sudan, uh, you, maybe one or two things you mentioned, and then in China and Cuba, as though this is some new revelation, and just a tiny little box. Yes. And of course... As you pointed out, it's very interesting that uh, they would say anything about the Sudan. It wasn't until Peter Hammond started talking about this that these things yes. came up in the first place. But um, just <clears throat> if that would have happened in in other situations, or if or if homosexuals or, or we could go on and on had been attacked or that sort of thing, mm -hmm. it would have been front page news, of course. Yes. Well, it isn't front page news, and nothing is being done about it because Christians don't care. That's right. They're just waiting to be raptured or they're waiting for God to answer their prayers and give them what they want so they can go on enjoying life. That's right. And that again is, is a desire for timelessness within history. Not yes. to be bothered with the wear and tear of, of history and what is going on elsewhere. And that's one reason that Chalcedon has been committed to, to pointing out these things month after month in the Chalcedon Report. And frankly, very few other people are doing it. What most people should be praying for, if they were honest, dear Lord, put us in a cocoon until <laughs> our time to go. That's right. Well, we got uh, into some of the byways in our discussion of time, but they are essentially related because... Time means relevance, and we have to be, as creatures of time, relevant to our day and to the burdens and problems of our world. And Rush, I want to put in a, I don't usually do this, but put in a plug for Chalcedon. If there's anything that even before I came here has always impressed me about Chalcedon is the utter relevance, uh, the application of the faith. Uh, historic Christian, Orthodox, of course, biblical faith in all areas of life. Uh, there's a, there really is a balance here that, by God's grace, that you've had, Rush, of having um, a writing and, and scholarship that's very relevant. There, of course, is a lot of scholarship out there that is just ivory tower, almost Gnostic, you know, Rush, arcane yeah. scholarship. And on the other hand, there are these mindless activists that just run out and do all sorts of crazy things. And I don't want to be more specific than that, but. I, I see here a remarkable biblical balance of very powerful, um, persuasive biblical scholarship, but it's very relevant, and that's what we've got to continue to do, and by God's grace we will continue to do. Uh, that's, that's, that's the crying need of the hour, is, is relevant biblical faith. Well, I think it has to begin with a belief, as Hebrews says, that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him diligently. I am afraid that a great many people in the church do not really believe in God. That's right. That's One right. of the horrifying episodes of late has been this new version oh, of yes. the 
New IV. Oh. This is the Bible that most of our uh, so-called evangelicals and our so-called reformed people use. That's right. It's never been that good a Bible. No. But even more so now, the newest NIV will drop all gender references. God will no longer be He. Everything will be depersonalized. And, and that is saying that God isn't real, that His Word is not the Word of, right. of the infinite and omnipotent being who is going to judge us. We can tamper with His Word. We can take out the uh, references to male and female, to he and she, and make everybody an it. Yes. And then next, maybe we can eliminate all references to homosexuality as evil, and then maybe adultery. Absolutely. Now, if the Bible is going to conform to man's word, then it is man's word, and you might as well call it that. That's right. But if it's God's word, God is going to judge those who tamper with his word. Absolutely. And we have one of the biggest churches in the country which claims Mm. to be evangelical behind this falsification of the Bible and a leading pastor saying in another 25 years anyone who still wants the King James Version will be regarded with amusement. Yes. Oh, Rush, and and the rationale for this whole situation, Mm. the, the, the head of the group of these liberals masquerading as conservatives. And what's so terribly galling about this is they've been pretending over the years that, oh, this is a very conservative translation. I mean, I almost have more respect for the just out-and-out liberal translations because at least they're not being uh, pretentious about it. But the rationale for all this is, well, language changes, you know, and we want everything in the language of the people, which is a total lie. they're just caving into feminism, caving into evil. And that church that you mentioned, Rush, the, there, there was a particular member there that uh, there was a man that was trying to become a member of the church. And, of course, that church um, has women, uh, women ministers. Hmm. And uh, he said, you know, I can't be party to this. And they said, well, you know, that's one of the requirements of membership in this church that you will sign that you're willing to be taught the word of God by, by women, by women ministers. And, of course, he refused to do that. Hmm. But it's no wonder that that particular church is, is, is off into apostasy. This is, of course, the main seeker-sensitive church growth church in the nation, whose name I won't mention, but it's evil. Yes. And, it's a, and, and the Bible is that... Per, well, I don't even call it a Bible. It's not a Bible, this new thing. It's thoroughly corrupt. Have you ever been to a Bible study in a church that uses numerous translations? Oh, and whatever, whatever suits you best, whatever helps chaotic. you best... I, oh, well. I, I went to one, and in, in the Bible study, the, the person who was leading it would read the, the scripture passage out of their Bible. I says, now, does anybody else have a different version? And you get four or five different yes. versions. And what was interesting, periodically, somebody would say, well, that's not what my Bible says. Yes, exactly. Totally confusion. It was just, well, Designer Bibles. whatever your Bible yes. says, however you want to you know, view it, there are different opinions here, and uh, there's no absolute standard. It's another heresy of the, the her- example of the heresy of democracy in the church. Mm-hmm. You ju- well, 
<coughs> these churches, if you visit there and they call on you and ask you if you're interested in membership and you say, what does your church believe? Their response is, what do you want us to believe? Exactly. Now, no idea there of the word once and for all time delivered to the saints. Absolutely. Yes, and and I, I won't be afraid to mention the name of the particular publisher. Zondervan has just, on this issue, and it's been, it's just tragic, just totally tragic. And, and this demonstrates the evil and the apostasy in the church. Because when you tamper with the living, inspired word of God, it's a very, God, God uh, reserves his judgment for those who would tamper with his word, his precious, inspired, infallible, and preserved word. We must speak up, and I commend, of course, those at Calcedon, and there are a number of others in the nation that are speaking up on this matter. It certainly is a matter that, that, that should be exposed. Well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Keep your questions coming, and as we are able, we will be happy to answer you.